Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Friday, May 21st of the year 2021. It was on this day in 1881 that the American Red Cross was founded by Clara Barton, a Civil War veteran of the medical field, you could say. She was known as the Angel of the Battlefield, and she established the American Red Cross here in the United States. It was on this day in 1927 that Charles Lindbergh landed at Le Bourget Airport in France at 5.21 p.m., finishing the first solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean. And in 1980, The Empire Strikes Back, the second Star Wars film, made its world premiere. But this week, we are getting ready to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, which will be this Sunday, the last feast day of the Easter season and the end of the 50-day celebration of Easter. That, of course, began on Easter Sunday. Many people often lose sight of that, that Easter is not just one day. It is 50 days long. It takes us 40 days to prepare for it in the season of Lent and 50 days to celebrate it. And we end that celebration with the Feast of Pentecost, which remembers Jesus fulfilling his promise by sending the Holy Spirit onto the apostles and through them onto the church, where it began to animate the church in its preaching, in its teaching, and its inspiration of thousands upon thousands of converts who professed their faith in Jesus Christ as a result of the preaching of the apostles. And we believe that continues even to today. We celebrate that in the Sacrament of Confirmation. Specifically, we pray and celebrate the descent of the Holy Spirit onto the Confirmande. And we remember the movement of the Holy Spirit throughout the history of the Church. And remembering this podcast as Faith, Hope, and History with Father Bill, we recognize the Spirit's work in the history of the Church not just in the good things that the church has done and the advancement of its teaching, its tradition, its preaching, the impact that it's had on the world, especially in the culture of Western civilization, but also in the not-so-savory parts of church history. There have been examples of great corruption, and let's face it, the church has a very checkered past. And I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit inspired that checkered past, but we remember that Jesus left this church to be tended to by sinners. And while a lot of people see that as an excuse to not listen to the church, to not listen to the Holy Father or the bishops, to not listen to the priests, and when it comes to the sacrament of confession, some outside our faith tradition will say, well, priests are frail, imperfect, sinful people. Why would I go to confession to another sinner? That's hypocritical. Well, no, it's not hypocritical. It's commanded by Jesus, and we recognize in the Holy Spirit that even it's In its worst parts of its history, the Holy Spirit has managed to get the church out of that, to continue to move forward. Some people would say, we know the Holy Spirit is guiding the church, because all you'll have to do is look at the church's history, and you wonder how it ever survived 2,000 years. Perhaps we're not giving it enough credit, but we do recognize the movement of the Holy Spirit in the church. And even though today we see people throwing the Holy Spirit around as if it's some kind of imaginary friend who does whatever we think it will, especially with regard to recent developments in the church. I remember on the 
day that Pope Francis was elected Pope, I was on the phone with a sister from one of the local high schools here in San Francisco, and I asked her, I said, what do you think, the new Jesuit Pope? And she said, oh, it's wonderful. The Holy Spirit finally broke through. And I thought I'd have a little fun with her, and I said, you mean like it broke through on the day Pope Benedict XVI was elected Pope? To which she said, oh, no, no, for the first time since Vatican II. And I'm thinking, oh, that makes sense. Okay, for the first time in over 40 years, the Holy Spirit is now guiding the church. Basically, she was coming from the uh, position and the view that if it's my way, then it's the Holy Spirit. If it's not my way or it's, if it's not what I want, then it must be human error. And some people even go so far as to say the devil has taken over the church. The church has lost its way. The church is heretical. And we tend to reduce the Holy Spirit to, again, as I've said before, an imaginary friend. Where if things go my way or if it's what I want, then of course it must be the Holy Spirit. If it doesn't go my way, then it's human error, heresy, or maybe even the devil has taken over the church. And we certainly see that in the divide in the church, somewhat divide, between people who accept the Second Vatican Council and those who insist on what authority they have received to make this determination. I don't know, but they insist that the Holy Spirit stopped inspiring the church when Vatican II came along. And the Second Vatican Council began to have its influence on the church. And you'll see people who are proponents of the Latin traditional Mass saying, this is the way the Holy Spirit wants it. And you'll see people of the current Mass saying, no, this is the way the Holy Spirit wants it. And if you question Pope Francis, those who are on his side will say, well, don't you believe in the Holy Spirit and the influence of the Holy Spirit? But those same people, when it came to Pope Benedict XVI, insisted, oh, the Holy Spirit has abandoned the church. So we throw the Holy Spirit around uh, like it was some kind of spiritual ragdoll or some favorite imaginary friend where we interpret the Holy Spirit according to our liking. But Jesus really has an interesting angle when it comes to the Holy Spirit that perhaps should be a challenge to anyone, whether they are proverbial liberals or conservatives or pre-Vatican II Catholics or post-Vatican II Catholics or just simple Catholic people, Jesus presents a certain angle to the Holy Spirit that perhaps should give everyone pause and really accentuates the fact that we can't base the Holy Spirit's movements on what we want and what we like. If asked to name a symbol of the Holy Spirit, most people will state that the white dove, a common symbol in biblical illustrations, is that symbol of the Holy Spirit. That would be the most common symbol because we see it in illustrations. Uh, you look at illustrations of the Annunciation where the angel Gabriel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And then you illustrate it, or it has been illustrated in, in many great works of art. You often see the Holy Spirit hovering over Mary in the form of a dove. Others, remembering the story of Pentecost would state the tongues of fire, which settled upon the heads of the apostles and the Blessed Mother who was in their midst. And, of course, symbolizes the Holy Spirit animating the work and the preaching of the church. And, of course, the fiery symbol corresponds to the liturgical color, which is red, not white, but red, worn on feasts of the Holy Spirit, such as the celebration of the Sacrament of Confirmation 
and this Sunday's celebration of Pentecost. But it's interesting with regard to those two symbols of the dove and the flame, because in both cases, those symbols are used in the Bible in only one occasion. One occasion. Now, we see it four times in the Gospels because each Gospel tells that story, but it's only one event in which we see the dove explicitly stated as representing the Holy Spirit, and that is at the baptism of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit came down upon him like a dove. John the Baptist will say, I saw the Spirit hovering over him in the form of a dove. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit hovered over the Blessed Virgin Mary in the form of a dove, and yet many of the artistic illustrations will have that same symbol because it is so popular. We, look, we see a white dove just in the wild, and we think of the Holy Spirit, at least Christians do. And the flame is seen only at Pentecost. But those are not the only two times that we see the Holy Spirit present in the Scriptures, or talked about in the Scriptures. Luke goes on to say that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert, but it doesn't necessarily say it was symbolized in a dove. The Acts of the Apostles will say that the Holy Spirit descended upon people, such as the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, when he received Peter into his home. It doesn't say in the form of a dove. It just said the Holy Spirit came upon them, and Peter said, well, what's to keep these people from being baptized? But these two symbols are only in these two occasions of the Holy Scriptures. But Jesus himself used metaphors when speaking of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, he refers to rivers of living water flowing from within him who believes. That's John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39. The author of the Gospel then notes that Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit that was to come once Jesus was glorified. So here Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as rivers of living water. In the third chapter of John, however, I find the symbol that is the most compelling. In the third chapter of John, Jesus speaks of yet another symbol of the Holy Spirit during his clandestine conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus, who came to him in the middle of the night. The symbol Jesus uses in describing the Holy Spirit is the wind. Not a dove, not a flame, not rivers of living water. In this case, found in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 8. The symbol is the wind. And believe it or not, this symbol actually corresponds to certain events in the Old Testament where the action of God is described. First of all, at the moment of creation, prior to God saying, let there be light, the book of Genesis says, a mighty wind swept over the waters. And these are the waters of the abyss that were enveloped in darkness. And this is before God says, let there be light. The book of Genesis says, a mighty wind swept over the waters. And we as Christians recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit. Actually, the presence of the, uh, the Trinity itself. God the Creator said, He spoke His word, and Jesus is the word made flesh, and the mighty wind swept over the waters. 
right there at creation, we see all three persons of the Holy Trinity that is also inclusive of the Holy Spirit. As the Hebrews departed Egypt across the Red Sea, it is written in the book of Exodus, the Lord swept the sea with a strong east wind. That's in Exodus 14, 21. And the wind also symbolizes God's movement on that first Christian Pentecost, before even the tongues of fire appear over the apostles' heads. There was the sound of a strong driving wind right at the beginning of the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. So where we see rivers of living water being spoken of in only one place in the Gospel of John, where we see the symbol of the dove four times, but only in describing one event, the baptism of Jesus, and while we see the symbol of the flame only once in the Acts of the Apostles as symbolic of the Holy Spirit, we hear the symbol of the wind multiple times throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. And it's a clever metaphor for the nature and action of the Holy Spirit, but it's an unusual one when placed beside the symbols of water, fire, and the dove. Unlike these symbols, you can't see it. You can't illustrate the wind. No one can describe what the wind looks like. It's invisible. It has no shape, no size, no color, no form. And unless it's in motion, it doesn't exist. And the only evidence of its existence is when it is in motion and we see its effects. We don't see the wind blowing. We see things blowing in the wind. Try and illustrate the wind. You can't illustrate the wind unless you have something being affected by that wind. When illustrated, only a few, maybe twirled lines depict not the wind itself, but its motion. We see the fog rolling in, sometimes relentlessly, as it moves with the wind. We observe the trees swaying. Here in San Francisco, uh, during the windy season, and not just during it, these are permanent fixtures, you go to the coast and you see the wind-bent trees. Having grown up, constantly being pushed by the wind, these trees, try and move a tree by yourself, but these trees are moved and bent away from the wind. After years and years of being blown by the wind, We see the leaves being tossed around. We feel the wind as it blows past us. We speak of a pleasant, cool breeze or an intense wind chill factor. Look at the wind of a hurricane reaching over 100 miles an hour and compare that to the cool breeze that we find so refreshing. We cannot capture it, control it, or harness it. It's completely out of our control. And the proponents of green energy and renewable energy who insist on promoting wind-powered energy, if the wind doesn't blow, guess what? Nothing happens. And you can't make it blow. 
But when it does, there is no stopping it. There is no seeing it, and there is no controlling it. We can only feel it and observe the effect of its movement and its power. If one visits Los Angeles in the late summer or early autumn, one would experience the great Santana winds. More often than not, they're fanning the flames of great fires. Here in California, we refer to it as the fire season. And invariably, every year when the Santana winds blow, there's a great concern because of such dryness in that wind. It's a hot time of the year. The danger of wildfires increases. If one were to live in the Midwest or the Gulf Coast, one would know the power of great hurricanes and the unpredictability of tornadoes. Yet, the power of the wind can also have a more subtle effect. As I mentioned, drive up and down the coast here in San Francisco and you'd observe the trees, large, sturdy, immovable, yet bent inward toward the land, Years of being battered and formed by the invisible wind having caused them to take shape leaning away from the sea. And that's the symbol that Jesus uses in describing the wind. That is his symbol. And that's a symbol that we see in both the Old and the New Testament. And try and compare the Holy Spirit to that, to the wind. And then listen to people describe the Holy Spirit as something that only has an influence if things go my way. Or it isn't having an influence if it doesn't go my way. I mean, how often do people toss around the Holy Spirit? I often like it when a person is really struggling and they will say, you know, of the difficulty that they're having, and sometimes people, friends, often pietistical people of faith, will nod their heads and say, well, just trust in the Holy Spirit. And while that is a virtuous thing to say, sometimes I wonder if they're saying, trust in the Holy Spirit because they should add, because I'm not going to do anything for you. Believe in the Holy Spirit because I'm not going to get involved. But the Spirit is compared to the wind. The driving force of the church is the wind that is the Holy Spirit. Try as we might to predict its movement, it is an impossible task. Yet who can deny the powerful and subtle effects it has? And who can deny the powerful and subtle effects the Holy Spirit has had on the world, sanctified by the ongoing presence of the church to whom the Spirit has been given as its advocate. And just look at the history of the church. Yes, it has a checkered past, and we've always managed to overcome that. The church has always managed to emerge, usually stronger than it was before. But who can deny the, the effects it has had on the church itself, through thick and thin, grace and vice, virtue and scandal, as it continues its work as one of the oldest living institutions in history that has had a strong and great impact on Western civilization in particular and the world in general. Thanks to the church, we have modern science. We have schools. We have hospitals. We have due process of law. 
And these are future podcasts I could talk about, how all this is so. But you can't deny the effect of the church on the world, and you cannot deny the effect of the Holy Spirit on the church. Who can deny its movement in the constancy of our apostolic leadership and the faith of the millions who follow Christ? And yet, who can stop the ongoing movement of this invisible force that is the Holy Spirit, that is completely out of our control, blowing not where we would have it blow, but blowing where it wills, yet relentlessly continuing to form and shape the church that God intends the church to be? The wind is blowing and nothing can stop it. The Holy Spirit is blowing through the church, and nothing can stop it. Hopefully we're blowing with it, and we're being moved by it. But let's not make it some kind of suits our fancy illustration to give credibility to something we just simply agree with, or to take away credibility of something we simply don't agree with. It's a dynamic thing people are talking about, when they invoke the Holy Spirit. And while we have very vivid illustrations in the dove, in the flame, and in the rivers flowing from within, let's think of the Holy Spirit as the wind. Sometimes it's a cool breeze. Sometimes it fans relentless flames. I mean all this in the spiritual sense. Sometimes it can bend very sturdy, stubborn things to ultimately shape it in the way the Spirit wants it to be shaped. Sometimes the Spirit is a tornado and a hurricane. And that's the symbol Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus' symbol that we also see in the Scriptures, Old and New Testament. The Holy Spirit is the wind and the wind cannot be stopped. The wind does what it wants, goes where it wants. We don't know what direction it might come from, and we don't even know what's there unless we feel its motion. Let's ponder that. As we, as Catholic people, as Christian people, profess our faith in a God that is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let's not reduce the Holy Spirit to nothing more than an imaginary friend, as so many people do with Jesus when they say, what would Jesus say? And what do you know? It's exactly what I'd say. What would Jesus do? And what do you know? It was exactly what I'd do. Shazam! Let's not do the same thing with the Holy Spirit. But rather, let's really put a faith in what that symbol means as Jesus gives it to us. And that perhaps is the most challenging part of our faith. So those are my thoughts for uh, this Friday before Pentecost Sunday, before we bring Easter 2021 to a close. I hope it's been a good time of spiritual celebration after the 40 days of Lent. And I certainly hope that as we bring this Easter to a close and also celebrate the subsequent feast days after Easter of Trinity Sunday, Corpus Christi, that as we move in these Weeks following the end of Easter, we'll see our nation and our world continue to move out of the throes of this pandemic. 
where we are not afraid of that invisible force that is the virus, something that's brought great evil and great oppression and great death into our world, but rather we'll celebrate the other invisible force, an invisible force that we worship as God, an invisible force that gives life, that gives breath to our faith, and animates the church. So let's see that real contrast to the Holy Spirit, to what's been going on in our world by worldly things, and pray that by the grace of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we will see our world continue, and perhaps more rapidly, move out of this crisis. So thanks for your attention. Have a good Pentecost, a good final days of Easter. Thanks for listening, and with any luck, I'll talk to you again soon.